Uh, now, would you turn your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 18? We're, um, we've been looking at the uh, parables uh, of our Lord in Matthew's gospel over uh, these uh, Sunday evenings. And we come to the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, and we'll read from verse 21, Matthew 18 and verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgive you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his word. Now, you'll notice that Jesus told this parable in response to a question from Peter in verse 21. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Peter, trained in the Jewish law, knew that he had a duty to forgive his fellow man. Now, forgiveness is not something that comes easily or naturally to us. Revenge, we are told, is sweet. As King Louis XII of France said, nothing smells so sweet as the dead body of your enemy. But from their reading of the Old Testament, the rabbis taught, and rightly so, that Yahweh's people had a moral obligation to forgive. Uh, but they had put limits on that forgiveness, arguing that unlimited forgiveness or unlimited mercy would simply encourage sin. So they said, you should forgive, yes, you should forgive, up to three times. Now, when Peter asked the question, he's being extremely generous, he's shooting high, and he's extending the limit from three to seven, up to seven times, he says, more than double that which was taught by the rabbis. But Jesus replied in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but <coughs> 77 times. Jesus takes the perfect number, seven, 
multiplies it by the number of completion, 10, and then adds another 7 for good measure. He says it's perfection multiplied by completion added to perfection. In other words, forgiveness can't be measured. You can't put limits on forgiveness, that we have an ongoing moral duty to be merciful to others. Now, it's in this context that Jesus gives this parable of the unmerciful servant. And he does uh, that to explain to us very simply that the forgiven person is a forgiving person. And the person who has been been, uh, forgiven by God ought to forgive uh, his fellow creatures, particularly his, uh, uh, the family of God. Now, notice three things with me from the parable. Notice, first of all, the immensity of the debt that was incurred. Uh, look at verse 23 uh, through to 25. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Here is a a king and he calls his servants together to settle their accounts. Now, the word servant or slave does not necessarily mean a domestic or a a farm agricultural uh, slave or agricultural servant. All citizens of an ancient kingdom were in the broadest sense slaves to the king, subjects of the king, and they owed him complete allegiance. Uh, uh, Right up until 1985, we weren't citizens of the United Kingdom. We were subjects of the United Kingdom, that we were subjects of the, the queen. We had a responsibility to to obey the monarchy. That changed in 1985. Even noblemen, in spite of their wealth and their position, were as much kings, were as much the king's slaves as menial workers. And often a king would subdivide his territory into provinces that were ruled by these subordinate kings, these subordinate sovereigns, these uh, subordinate servants. For instance, King Herod and his family ruled uh, various parts of Palestine, uh, four territories, uh, under the direction, under the authority of the emperor of Rome. Now, these aristocratic slaves were responsible for raising taxes from their territories for the supreme emperor or the king that was over all. In view of the amount that the servant owned, uh, 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 it's very clear in the text that uh, this this, uh, unmerciful servant occupied the position of a subordinate king. And he was called in then by the supreme king to settle accounts and pay the taxes that had been raised. But he was unable to pay for whatever reason. He had embezzled it. He had squandered it. He had failed to collect it. And the king ordered that his palace, his possessions, indeed his wife and family, were to be sold to repay the debt. Now, at that point, this servant, this subordinate 
king, this ruler, falls to his knees and asks for mercy, and the great king cancels all of his debt. Now, here we see the extraordinary love and compassion of our God, that he is able and willing to cancel all our sins, all the debts that we have incurred before him. Now, what lessons are contained in that first part of the parable? Well, first of all, we see sin is described as an unpaid debt. Now, there are at least five words for sin in the New Testament. One means to miss the mark. Uh, God has a standard at which we must aim, and we have shot wide of that standard. My brother and I had a dartboard on the back of the door in our bedroom growing up, but there were more holes in the door than in the dartboard. We shot wide. Uh, We missed the mark. Another word means to slip or fall. He has skidded in some temptation. He has lost his foothold and he has fallen over. Another means to step over the line, to break through uh, God's restraints. That's the word transgression. The fourth means to be completely lawless, to ignore God's word altogether, to have no conscience uh, about the word of God. And the fifth word is this word that's used by Jesus here, uh, and it's the word debt. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who are indebted to us. So sin is seen by Jesus as a debt. And every time we sin, we owe something to God. That a payment has to be made. Just as when we uh, purchase Uh, something. We receive an itemized bill uh, with uh, a price beside uh, each item that's totaled up in the bottom, and maybe we're given 30 days to pay. So, when we sin against God, God records that, totals it, and that sin must be paid for. I want to ask you then this evening, how long is your list? You must realize that when you sin, you are incurring debt, a debt that must be paid for in the sight of God. Do you see yourself as a person who's indebted to God? It's a, it's a terrible thing not to pay your bills. In a previous church, one of our members carried out some work for a professing Christian. And uh, in spite of the fact that he put repeated invoices and bills through his door, uh, those uh, invoices were never settled. Those bills were never paid. And whenever uh, this uh, member uh, met this individual uh, in the street, he would hang his head down. He would turn away. He would perhaps cross the street because he was riddled with guilt over this unpaid debt. Well, every time we sin, we incur debt, a debt that needs to be paid, and we too ought to be riddled with guilt over that unpaid debt. So, sin is an unpaid debt. Secondly, sin is a debt that we can never pay. We're told in the parable that this subordinate king owned 10,000 talents. Now, that was an astronomical sum of money. The annual revenue for Herod the Great's entire kingdom was 900 talents. 
So this 10,000 talents amounted to 11 years taxation for the four provinces of Palestine. In today's terms, it went into millions, if not billions of pounds. Now, Jesus' point is that sin is an incalculable and an unpayable debt. Now, we must understand that sin leaves us indebted to God to such a degree that we can never pay that debt ourselves. Now, sometimes we think we can. Sometimes we think that through our good deeds, we can kind of compensate, make payment for the debts that we have incurred. We find in this parable, the slave, the subordinate king saying in verse 26, be patient with me, I will pay you back everything. How on earth was he ever going to do that? He had accumulated debts equivalent to 11 11 years of the combined taxes of the four Roman provinces of Palestine. He still had to pay the taxes for that current year. It would have been impossible for him to amass that amount of money to cancel, to pay off his debt. Now, the sooner we realize that sin is a debt and that we cannot pay that debt, the better. That why my works, my religion, my good intentions can never compensate for the massive debt that I have incurred before God. I can't say to God, here are some good deeds. Uh, Take those good deeds into account. It's like offering pennies when you're in debt to millions. Here are some promises uh, to make up for my debt. Here's some religion to nullify my debt. Here's some obedience to outweigh my debt. Paying your electricity bill this quarter doesn't make up for the three or four years that you've failed to pay it in the past. And the sooner a person realizes that, the better, because what it does is it removes all self-confidence and respect to oneself before God. We must realize that we are in debt to God, and through our best efforts, we can never repay that debt to Him. The immensity of the debt... He incurred sin is an unpaid debt. Sin is a debt uh, that we can never pay. And sin is a debt that can only be canceled by God. And this man is brought before the king and uh, learns of the punishment he rightly uh, deserves. He pleads for mercy and asks for time that he could pay back everything. Now, the king knew, of course, that was impossible for this man uh, could never raise that kind of money. And we're told in verse 27 that the king canceled the debt. And out of pity for him, then the master of that servant released him and forgave him that debt. This man had no defense. He was guilty. He stood condemned, but he cast himself upon the mercy of the king, and the king canceled all that he owed. Here is an extraordinary picture of God's compassionate love to genuinely repentant people who cast themselves upon God's mercy. This man asked for patience, and, uh, and instead he received uh, forgiveness, a cancellation of the debt. Only the debt, only the king could cancel that debt because that debt had been incurred against him, but the king 
the great king mercifully, graciously, and wonderfully cancelled all that he owed. Now, since our debts have been occurred against God, only God can forgive them. Only God can cancel them. Only God has the, the right to stamp on that receipt paid in full. You see, this man, this servant, would either suffer the punishment that he rightly deserved, having all his assets sold to pay the debt, or he could cast himself on the mercy of the king, one or the other. Now, the, the choice is similar for us. We are either punished for the debt that we have incurred, which is an eternity uh, without God and without hope, or, or that debt is cancelled by the great king and we experience the forgiveness of God. And of course, that's why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world to die upon the cross to pay the price of sin, to purchase our salvation, to purchase our redemption, not that debt could legitimately and justifiably be forgiven. So the sooner we realize that sin is an unpaid debt, that sin is a debt that we cannot pay, that sin is a debt that can only be canceled by God, the better. Because when we cry to Him for mercy and grace, when we cast ourselves upon Him, it's then that we experience the removal of that debt. It's a terrible thing to be in debt, isn't it? A terrible, uh, it's a terribly heavy burden to bear. But when that debt is cancelled, what a relief that brings. The immensity of the debt he incurred. The second thing I want you to notice is the uh, inconsistency of the line he pursued. What happens next in the parable is almost uh, inconceivable. Look at verses 28 uh, to 30. Uh, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, notice that, fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. What happened uh, happens next is, is, is incongruous. The servant, perhaps, as he was leaving the palace, rejoicing in his great deliverance, comes across another servant who owns, owes him a hundred denarii. Now, really, that was nothing. A few months' wages for a laborer, a few days' wages for someone in a uh, middle-income bracket. It was an insignificant uh, amount in comparison to the debt that had just been cancelled. Now, we're told that the forgiven servant grabbed this man by the neck. In other words, he began to choke him and demanded that he pay back this relatively small amount. Now, the second servant uses exactly the same words as the first servant. If you look at verse 26 and 29, uh, he says, have patience with me and I will pay you back. Exactly the same words. Now, this, remember this man had been forgiven a debt that it would have been unpayable in a lifetime of, of taxes. And yet, for a few days' salary, 
he pressurizes this man into paying back his debt. One commentator calls it a moral monstrosity, and it gets worse. He has this man thrown into prison, which puts him into position that he can never pay back the debt. Now, some commentators have pointed out, and I think there's grounds to this, that this man was also a servant of the king. Do you notice in verse 28, verse 31, I noticed somewhere else when I was reading it, the term fellow servants, fellow servants, one of his fellow servants. And so perhaps the reason why he couldn't pay this debt was that he uh, was one of the, the subordinate kings to one of the provinces. He had collected his taxes, and he had just delivered his taxes to the great king. And then he comes out, and he meets this other servant who has had his, his, uh, his debt canceled, and that same servant pressurizes in him into paying what he is owed. So, so not only is he mistreating the, uh, the, his fellow servant, he's mistreating the king because this man had already given what was owed from his province to the great king. So it wasn't simply an attack on the other servant. It was an attack on the king himself. Now, what is Jesus' point? Our sins against God are gigantic. They are mammoth in their moral offensiveness in comparison to anyone's sin against us. And if God has forgiven that gigantic debt, Christians ought to be characterized by this willingness to forgive the comparatively smaller debt uh, of, of others. What Jesus is saying in the parable is that the forgiven man ought to be a forgiving man, that it's inconceivable, it's unreasonable, it's unbelievable that a man or a woman who has tasted the forgiveness of God should be unforgiving towards others. We see this wonderfully illustrated in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That we come into the presence of the Father to worship him. And one of those petitions concerns forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. And I think the authorized version is a little misleading here because it reads, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who are indebted to us. Forgive us. So, so the forgiveness of our debts is not conditional upon our forgiveness of others. It's, it's because He is forgiving us that we forgive others. For there is this underlying assumption that the believer, that the child of God, the one who can address the great God of heaven as his Father has, uh, has and will continue to forgive those who sin against him. That a forgiving spirit is the mark of the forgiven individual. Our Lord assumes that when we come confessing our sins to Him in uh, as much need of daily forgiveness as we are of daily bread, that we will already have forgiven those that have sinned against us. 
Now, this is something completely foreign to the natural man. Tramp on my toe. And I will wait with bitterness, with bated breath, with gritted teeth until I get an opportunity to stamp on your toe. But the man who knows that God has forgiven him and in grace has separated uh, his sins from him, as James read to us, as far as the east is from the west, that man ought to be compassionate and gracious in turn to, uh, to those who have sinned against him. The man, after a period of deep conviction, when he has wrestled and struggled under the weight of his own personal debt, and then sees something of the glory of, of Christ and the wonder of forgiveness, realizing that Christ has died in his place, cries out to him for relief. He can only uh, be gracious, tender, and forgiving towards others. If we have been forgiven by the great King, who justifiably could have blotted us up, out or locked us up forever in hell, then as a forgiving, a forgiven individual, we cannot but help forgive others. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, says, there is none so tender to others as they which have received mercy themselves, for they know how gently God has dealt with them. Jesus is telling us in this parable uh, that uh, it's, it's, it's the natural instinct of the Christian to forgive others, and it's unnatural to be unwilling to forgive others. Are you forgiven? Have you repented of your sin? Have you cast yourself upon the mercy and the grace of God? then you ought to be for forgiving towards others. If an infinitely holy God has canceled the debt that you incurred as one of his creatures, how can you not forgive one of uh, your fellow creatures? Is there bitterness in your heart, rancor, a desire for revenge, a hard and sorious spirit towards a fellow Christian? Could it be that you have lost that personal appreciation of the grace of God that secured for you the forgiveness of God? Have you lost the joy of your salvation? You see, an unforgiving spirit can rob you of the joy of your heart, leaving you bitter and broken. Look at this man here. So he, he comes and he he, he is forgiven a debt that is equivalent to 11 years taxation of Herod's kingdom. 11 years. This, this weight has suddenly been removed. He thought he was going to lose everything. And you would expect him to be coming out of that, that uh, palace dancing, singing, rejoicing. But instead, he grabs this man by the throat. Presumably, he wrestles him to the ground and he, pre he presses him for, for repayment of the uh, much smaller debt, that, insignificant in comparison debt that he owed. Now, where's his joy? Where's his joy gone? 
Where's his thankfulness to God? God, my, my brother, and I have to emphasize he's not a Christian, still not a Christian, but we're still praying for him. But my brother used to go with a girl in Bangor, and her father did the pools. Now, the younger people will not know what the pools are, but uh, before the national lottery, it was a way of making a quick buck. And the, this was the days before the internet. So uh, his girlfriend's father used to do, fill in the pools. And what you had to do was get eight draws. Uh, and if you were able to get eight draws in the football matches, predict eight draws, you would win. I don't think it was a fast amount of money, maybe 150,000, 200,000 pounds. And so no internet. So Nicky, my brother, sat in the car and uh, got the results, got the results of the radio and filled in the pools coupon. And then he went into his girlfriend's house and he handed the pool scooping to his uh, prospective father-in-law, although that didn't work out. Handed the pool scooping, understandably, handed the pool scooping to, to his prospective father-in-law and said, would you check those off for me? And he's watching the football results on the television. He's ticking them off one by one and his eyes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And he ends up dancing all around the, the room. We've won, we've won, we've won. This vast amount of money was coming to this man, or so he thought, and he was overjoyed. This man in the parable has just had this vast amount of money cancelled. He should be walking in air. He should be dancing in the street. He should be thanking God. And he's consumed with hatred and bitterness as he seeks to strangle his fellow servant for his failure to pay his debt to him. See, unforgiveness can rob you of your joy. That the debt that the man owed him was one six hundred thousandth, one six hundred thousandths of the debt that had just been cancelled. An anonymous saint of long ago wrote, revenge indeed seems often sweet to men, but oh, it is sugared poison, only swallowed gall, and its aftertaste is as bitter as hell. And if you are a Christian and you have trouble uh, forgiving uh, anyone, go to the cross. Remind yourself of the payment that was made to secure your salvation. Remind yourself of that, that the blood that was shed, that the wounds that were f uh, afflicted, the, the dereliction that he experienced when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if he went through that to cancel your debt, can you not forgive people who have this uh, infinitely smaller debt against you? So the immensity of the debt he cancelled, uh, of the debt he incurred, the uh, uh, inconsistency of the line he pursued, and then lastly, the intensity of the wrath he provoked. Look at verse uh, 31 to 35. Verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went out and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgive you all that <coughs> debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger that his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. 
Now notice this, verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will not uh, will do to every one of you if you do not, notice this, forgive your brother from the heart. On hearing of this servant's attitude, the great king had him arrested, tortured until the debt was paid back. We must be very careful. You've got to remember that parables are, are there to make one point. And there is a danger that you read too much in uh, to uh, uh, parables. Um, and some people come to this and they say, well, uh, God revokes the forgiveness that he once extended to this man. In other words, our being forgiven is conditional upon us forgiving others. Now, that interpretation would be uh, alien to the rest of the New Testament, which teaches us that we're, we're saved by, by grace alone. Others come and say uh, it means that an unforgiving spirit is evidence that this man was never forgiven in the first place. Uh, to be sure that that is possible, that an unforgiving spirit can be evidence of a, of a lack of a true knowledge of the forgiveness of God in our own hearts and lives. But I, I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching here. Remember, the parable is spoken uh, in response to a question. Verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? My brother sin against me and forgiven. Verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you uh, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And that's what this parable seems to be teaching, that, that there is a punishment upon a person who is a Christian but fails to forgive their brother. The Bible does teach us that as a father disciplines his children, so the Lord disciplines those who um, uh, fear him. That, that God actually steps in and punishes this unforgiving man. Just turn over to the Lord's Prayer in, in Matthew uh, chapter 6. Remember uh, uh, Matthew chapter 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But then, verse 12, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then down to verse 14, where you have a fuller explanation. And if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, remember the Lord's Prayer as a teaching device for the disciples. It's spoken to those who can address the great God of heaven as their Father in heaven. So, he's speaking to Christian people. And, and what he seems to be saying is, if there's this unwillingness to forgive you, to forgive others in your heart, having tasted the forgiveness of God yourself, that that very thing, that sense of forgiveness will be taken from you. I, I think that's the only conclusion and interpretation that you can come to this, uh, take out of the, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 and in this parable, that what 
what God does, if, if, if your sin has been forgiven and, and cancelled, the debt has cancelled, and you fail to forgive others, what God does is he takes away that very sense of forgiveness in your own heart. Well, that's a serious thing, isn't it? Well, of course, you're still forgiven. The debt is still cancelled. But that sense of forgiveness is gone. I love that hymn uh, with, with the line in it, to taste afresh the calm of sins forgiven. To taste afresh the calm of sins forgiven. There's something wonderful about coming into the presence of God with a fresh and deeper appreciation of his work upon the cross and having your guilty conscience sprinkled afresh with the blood of the everlasting covenant and, and knowing that, that God has forgiven you, that you're accepted by God. But if you hanker bitterness in your heart, if, if, if that uh, if there's a, this unwillingness to, to, to forgive, that very sense of forgiveness is taken from you. And that's a serious thing. Do you remember uh, in the uh, upper room when uh, they arrived in the upper room and uh, uh, all the disciples are there and there's a basin there and there's this towel there and all the disciples are standing on their dignity. There's no slave there. Refusing to adopt the position of a slave to wash the uh, other's feet. And our Lord, to their utter amazement, gets up. He takes off his outer garment. He wraps a towel around him. And he comes one by one in breathless wonder of the disciples and washes their feet. And then uh, he comes to Peter. And Peter always jumps in with both feet. And he says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. You're not going to wash my feet. No way are you going to wash my feet. And um, uh, Jesus says, and this is, this is important, he says, unless I wash your feet, you have no part of me. You have no part of me. And then Peter jumps in again with both feet and says, well, well wash me all over. Uh, give, me, give me a bath, he says. And the Lord says, those who already have had the bath don't need a bath again. They just need their feet washed as they walk through the world and they pick up the dirt of the world and the contamination of the world. They don't need to have a bath. They just need to come and have their feet washed. They need to confess their sin and deal with that sin so that their feet are washed. They don't need to be saved all over again. They just need their feet washed. But it is interesting, isn't it, that when, when Peter initially uh, says, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus says, unless I wash your feet, you have no part of me. No part of me. That there was... He still had his bath, but the intimacy that existed between him and, uh, uh, and Jesus at that minute was going to be broken. It's going to be broken. That it's possible uh, to be saved and yet to have that intimacy and that sense of his presence and that sense of love and relationship. It's possible to have that interrupted in our Christian experience. And I think this is what Jesus is teaching here. 
that if, if you are forgiven and yet you fail to forgive others, that that sense of forgiveness in some way is interrupted and you become hard and cranky and bitter and nasty. And I have met some grumpy Christians down through the years. I have. I'm not saying where I met them, but I've met some grumpy Christians down through the years. And I, I think what has happened to them is they have lost the wonder of the cancellation of the debt. They have lost the wonder of the gospel. And they've lost sight of the grace of God. And because of that, they're consumed with other people's and their offenses against them. And their indebtedness to them. Rather than thinking of the great debt that he has cancelled in the gospel. And if, if that's you, go to the cross. Stand in front of the cross and ask yourself, does my sin deserve any greater payment than he has made? Look at what it cost him. Were the whole realm of nature mine? That would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. How can I nurse grudges against my fellow blood-bought Christians? when I comprehend and understand, at least in a little part, what he has accomplished for me. The immensity of the debt uh, he owed, he incurred. Great debt. Wonderful news about the gospel is that debt can be cancelled through faith in Jesus. The inconsistency of the line he pursued. He, he, in spite of the cancellation of the debt, he lost his joy and he went out and he pursued this man that owed him so much less. And the intensity of the wrath he provoked. God is angry, angry with an unforgiving spirit. And in his anger, he might just take away that sense of forgiveness that we enjoy. Amen.